And our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and all the way to verse 129. That'll be page 963 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 119 is really a wonderful backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount as we think about the law and the commands that Christ gives to his people as the king, the righteous king, the prophet king. Psalm 119 is wonderful because it highlights many principles, but a few of them would be depending upon the Lord to create in us a desire to live by his law. And we'll be talking about that today. That uh, God, by his spirit working through the law, changes our hearts to delight in his law. We also see here a lamenting over sin. And the psalmist in Psalm 119 certainly looks around at the earth and sees a world that spurns God's law and his ways. That rebels against him and he mourns and laments over that. And that certainly is a... A good thing for us to do. We'll be speaking today about how that begins in us. Uh, We mourn that we live in a world that spurns God's law and his ways. And we mourn how we are complicit in that through our sin. So Psalm 119 verse 129 through verse 144. These are the very words of God. Please give your attention as his word is read in the presence of his people. Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. And teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Amen. And then go forward to Matthew chapter 5. That'll be on page 1501 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We come now to the Sermon on the Mount in our consideration Our text for consideration today. Hear once again God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when he, that is Jesus, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Imagine that right in the middle of our world is a wonderful king and a wonderful kingdom. Everyone wants to be a part of this kingdom. They want to live there. The peace, the prosperity, the quality of life all rank far and away better than any other place on earth. It's the envy of every other kingdom and nation. What is it that makes this place so good? Is it the king? Is it the people? Is it the laws? Is it the system of government? One day, the king says that he will let one, just one person, into his kingdom, whoever is deemed the most worthy. And so in the day of the judgment of the king, thousands upon thousands of people come, trying to impress the king. Some point to their riches, some point to their achievements, some point to their intellect. At the end of the line is a rather unassuming person, doesn't seem impressive on the surface. It's an older lady. The king finally gets to her. He asks, why should you be the one I let into my kingdom? Why are you worthy? She says this, my worthiness is found in my unworthiness or in the fact that I know I am unworthy. I believe I have found the secret to your kingdom. It is not found in the fact that people who live there are so very good or at least initially so very good, but rather it is this kingdom that makes them good. It changes them right down to the heart of who they are. And what I'm saying to you is that I'm coming with an empty hand. I'm coming like a wet piece of clay ready to be molded. I know that living in this kingdom will make me into the faithful citizen, the kind of faithful citizen, uh, just like all of the people who live there. This story highlights the truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ because the first thing That Christ demands in his kingdom. And when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about Jesus teaching about the the way of life of his kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the first thing that he demands is an empty hand. We must come to him empty so that we may be filled. And living in his kingdom and in the light of his kingdom does fill us with all that Jesus goes on to describe in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a very appropriate place for Jesus to begin this discourse, this very famous discourse known, on the sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, because in order for him to create these things in us, we must first empty ourselves. We are bankrupt before God, and so knowing our bankruptcy before God, we are to lament our sin. And lamenting our sin, we can then emulate the meekness that Jesus Christ himself shows to us. So we'll talk about those things. First, we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. Second, we realize that we must lament our sin. And lastly, we remember our meek king. As I mentioned, this is a really a fitting place for Jesus to start, giving the life of his kingdom. What does life in the kingdom of Christ look like? Well, it must begin with emptying ourselves. Now, if you were to set about redecorating your house, You could make all kinds of plans. You could hire an interior decorator to kind of start thinking about what it might look like. You may even begin purchasing all of the new stuff that you're going to put into your house. But the project is not really going to start coming together until you get all of the old stuff out. If you're going to totally redecorate your house, you need to empty it out first before you can move the new in. What Jesus is talking about here in this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 
is that we are to take what is naturally in us as fallen people, as sinful people, and we must rid ourselves of it, of our pride, of our self-centeredness, of our selfishness. So right from the start, if we are to live the life of Jesus' kingdom, we need to remember that we are to be suspicious of ourselves because the first word that Jesus gives is to say, I want you to take everything that will be found naturally in you and I want you to rid yourself of it. But all that we're going to talk about in this great discourse is, are things that are not naturally in us. These are things that come to us by God's grace. Every, every virtue, every aspect of character, that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is found by his grace and through faith. So these are not natural dispositions. When we talk about biblical meekness, we're not talking about people who sort of naturally have a a passive character, people who sort of naturally fade into the background. That is not biblical meekness. Biblical humility, it's the same kind of thing. There, There may be an earthly humility, but people may be seeking to puff themselves up showing how humble they are. This was really rampant in, uh, in the ancient Greek world. There was sort of a, a condescending humility that was present in many of the great thinkers. But Jesus says here, blessed are the poor. And that should tip us off that these are not natural dispositions. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. But let's stop there just for a moment. Blessed are the poor. There's nothing that you could use to finish that sentence that would line up with any natural way of thinking for most people, unless you were to say something, some kind of verbal trick, like, blessed are the poor in poverty, right? If, you're, if your life is bereft of, of being poor, if your life is bereft of challenging times, then, in the eyes of the world, you might be blessed. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So whatever he's going to say in whatever follows, and whatever this means... That the life that we are to live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural, that it will continually remind us that we cannot produce these, thi- these things on our own and we cannot find these virtues within ourselves. When Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not commending material poverty to us. He's not saying, Those who have no money, they are blessed in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. In fact, those who are trapped in material poverty often serve money in the same slavish way that the rich do if they are held by it. Just because you don't have a lot of money doesn't mean you don't worship money. It doesn't mean that you are not a slave to money. The reason that poverty is used a lot of times throughout scripture to illustrate humility before God is because when one understands his poverty wisely, he will be able able to use it to turn towards dependence upon God. And I, I can't really afford to do many things in this world. That reminds me that I'm a person who needs help. I'm a person who depends upon God. Material poverty then, when understood correctly, becomes a ready-made reminder that in and of yourself you are helpless. It's helplessness that is being taught here. It's not a, a helplessness towards man. To be a Christian is not to have an earthly Eeyore mentality. Right? We're always going to fail. And we're always, that's not what it is. It's a helplessness before God. The Sermon on the Mount reminds us that the most important thing we need to understand about 
what we do in our lives and what our life is all about is that we live before the face of God. God sees all and he knows all. And the greatest purpose that we have is to serve him in our lives. He made us for that purpose, to glorify him and to serve him and to commune with him. But we have to see that to do all of that is impossible for us to do on our own. It would be as if you were told to climb a mountain and you're standing at the foot of the mountain and and you look up, you realize you don't have the requisite knowledge, you don't have the skills, you don't have the resources, you don't have the equipment, you don't have the strength, you don't have the endurance. And you make a very reasonable assumption to say, "I, I physically cannot do it. I would not be able to actually do this right now. And this is life in the kingdom. The first thing to understand is that we, in and of ourselves, cannot do it. That is the proper posture for one who is seeking to have life in the kingdom of God. The term poor, for poor in spirit, has two basic meanings that we could highlight. The first, word, uh, the first meaning for the word poor is someone who is generally poor and lives basically day to day on their daily wages. This, is, this kind of situation is one that is real poverty. Imagine each day you earned just barely enough money to feed yourself or to feed yourself and your family and basically nothing more. That's real poverty. But there's a a poverty that goes even deeper than that. It's not the poverty of uh, the daily wage worker. It's the poverty of the beggar. Unlike the daily worker, the beggar can't point to his daily labor as here's something I do to sort of keep my life going. They go to work. The beggar is completely reliant on the help of others. The beggar is completely reliant on the mercy of others. All he can do is ask. All he can do is beg and hope that someone is moved to give him something. And that better captures the kind of poverty of spirit that Jesus is teaching here for those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus commends this as the true posture of his people. And in doing so, he's not bringing something new to the table. This is biblical faith from beginning to end. Human beings, because we are sinners, we have an absolute need for God. We need him. The Psalms uh, highlight this quite well. We saw it a little bit in Psalm 119. Dependence upon the law of God to create in us a spiritual life that is pleasing to the Lord. Psalm 34 says this. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 34 highlights that the one who knows salvation life is one who understands his absolute need for God. Psalm 40 is a really a beautiful psalm. It talks about being stuck in a pit And there's nothing you can do to get yourself out. You're kind of looking up. And that's our spiritual condition. We can't get ourselves out of this pit. And what what does God do? He reaches down into the depths of the pit. And he grabs us. And he lifts us up. He sets our feet upon a rock. Psalm 40 ends by saying this. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So we must see that life in the kingdom begins here. It begins with emptying. 
It begins with acknowledging spiritual bankruptcy. It begins with acknowledging an absolute need for God. It begins with acknowledging an inability to live the life that Jesus commands of his people. And so we must rid ourselves of our pride, of self-righteousness, of whatever we might point to, to bring before God to impress him. Life in his kingdom begins with an empty hand. It's a posture that we see in the prodigal son. Everything in his life has been spent. He's wasted his inheritance. He's gone off into a far land. There's no hope of boasting. He's surrounded in literal filth. He has the filth of his own sin and and the consequences of his sin. He's surrounded by literal filth as he's been reduced to feeding pigs. And he's tempted to eat the, the slop of the pigs. And so what does he do? What does the prodigal son do? He resolves himself to assume the posture of a slave before his father. He assumes his birthright is gone. He assumes any claim to his father's property is gone. And he resolves to go back to his father and he says this, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The wonderful truth of the prodigal son of course is that before he can even say that the father is running but the truth is that in his heart he had understood this spiritual bankruptcy do we have this have we emptied ourselves knowing that only god can fill us note what jesus says here the kingdom of heaven belongs to these is it that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these and other subsets of people No, what Jesus is saying is that everyone to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs has this poverty of spirit. Life in Christ and life in the kingdom of Christ begins at this very point. Acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy before God. Acknowledging your absolute need for God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Martin Luther on his deathbed said this, we are all poor beggars. This is certainly true. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And just a quick note on blessed. Uh, The word blessed is connected to the ideas of happiness, of good fortune, of being free from daily cares and worries. It actually brings us back to the idea of rich and poor. Why we would in a natural mindset, say, blessed are the rich. Why are the rich blessed? Well, because they are free from the kinds of worries that most people have to deal with. Imagine being presented with sort of any financial situation, anything that might stretch you, and you have enough money, you'd say, well, that, that's taken care of. A lot of people think, boy, it would be nice to have that sort of freedom from financial worry. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he is talking about is a feeling of joy, a feeling of freedom, an indestructible joy that that comes from being the recipient of God's favor. favor. It's a joy that comes from seeing the reality of this world that even riches in their best uses can only provide a temporary and fading comfort. Something that We know and learn, if you take stock in all that scripture says and all the things that Jesus teaches, is that without the comfort of the kingdom of Christ, the riches of this world are not a gift, they're a curse. Think about this past year and the the kind of fear 
that has gripped so many people. And it has often been those who have the most in this world who have had the most gripping fear about many things that we have seen in this past year. Why is that? It is because many of them do not have their riches. Their riches have them. They're a slave to possessions. They're slaves to comforts. And they believe that they must enjoy these for a set time. Because what if this world, what if this life is all that there is? Can you imagine the kind of fear that would grip your heart? If you, if you had absolute confidence in the notion that this life is all there is? Those who live life in the kingdom have an indestructible joy. Because they know they have been brought into God's favor. Because they know they have been given eternal life in Jesus Christ. Because they know one day this kingdom will be consummated. And they will live with their God forever. When we come to God in absolute poverty of spirit, he gives us that which we did not even know that we needed. You know, every t- the more I learn about sheep, the more it makes sense that we are constantly called sheep in the Bible. Sheep are indiscriminate eaters. They will gnaw on dirt if you lead them to it. So you have that beautiful picture of Psalm 23. He leads us into green pastures. Being a slave to earthly riches is like gnawing on dirt. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, leads us into the green pastures of the life of his kingdom to nourish us with the bread of life and the living water. Well, that's certainly our longest point today, and I know I go on and on as we Think about this Sermon on the Mount. There's so much there. Secondly, this. We realize that we must lament our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It really follows from the first. Jesus is not commending general mourning here. He's he's saying, you know, if you you mourn about something that, that happens in your life that is very sad, anything at all, anything that you find sad, uh, then you will be comforted. It's a mourning that follows from that first principle. If we look inward and see a spiritual bankruptcy, there's nothing in my heart that I can bring before God. All I can do is bring an empty hand. And to realize uh, the holy God that he is and the wretched sinners that we are, what is the proper response to that? Well, it should be a lamenting, a mourning over this reality. That there is nothing in and of myself That I can produce on my own to please my maker. I must mourn and lament over the reality of my sin. And it must be a mourning that so takes possession of the entire person that it it somehow is is outwardly manifested. Now we're all different. We have different characteristics, different dispositions of the heart, different kind of emotional makeups. But to lament over our sin, to mourn over our sin is something that we all must do. That it takes possession of our entire person. It somehow is manifested outwardly. Whether that be in regular prayer. Whether that be in sort of emotionally coming before God. And weeping, lamenting over our sin. And the many ways in which we offend him. And disobey him. The picture here of course is what we read this morning. The tax collector. What does he do? He humbles himself. He says he, he beats his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector does not consider himself before his fellow men. He's not even concerned about that. The tax collector considers himself before a holy and a righteous God. So ask yourself, brothers and sisters, have you mourned over your sin?
Certainly we mourn over the fact that we live in a world that spurns God's law. Certainly we mourn over the fact that we live in a world that is filled with evil. But do we see how there are ways in which we are complicit in all of those things? That we cannot point to the wickedness around us without first understanding that we are ourselves sinful. So have you mourned over your sin? The truly penitent sinner does not only lament and grieve that others sin, but that he sins, and that he does so daily. He laments, he has realized and seen that though he believed he was the center of the universe, though he believed he was uh, the, the center of it all, he finally realizes that it is not himself who is the center of this universe, it is God. And all things are to redound back to him and to his glory. And to see the many ways in which his sin has blinded him to that truth, he grieves. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Certainly, this points us forward into the future. It itself is a future tense verb, isn't it? They will be comforted. And the wonderful pictures uh, found in scripture, what happens at the end of the age? God will wipe away every tear. That is, a, that is an image that says, mourning will be no more. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. So we mourn over our sin now, looking forward to the time when the curse is gone, when death is gone, when suffering is gone, when sin will be no more, when our hearts will be made completely pure. We look forward to that, but there is a comfort that we receive now. And it's not a comfort that we experience where the grief and the lamenting and the mourning is taken away because we always wrestle with our own sinfulness in this life. We will never be totally free from sin. And so the life of mourning over sin in Christ's kingdom is a life of tension. We lament and grieve over our sin and we rejoice in the comfort that God gives to us and the comfort that he gives to us is the comfort of the gospel. To know that all of those who recognize their empty hands, all of those who mourn over their sin, all those who humbly come before God, God is pleased to welcome them to himself. For the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Micah chapter 7 says this, Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity, who passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The comfort of this life is knowing that we serve a God who does not count our sins against us, even in the reality that we still sin. That if we know him by his grace, that if we have been joined to him in covenant love, He wipes our sins away. Our only comfort in life and in death is what? We belong to a savior. We belong to a savior. A savior from what? A savior from our sin. That is the great comfort that Jesus points us to and that we will ultimately be comforted when his kingdom is consummated. So we realize that we must lament our sin. And then thirdly and lastly, remember that our meek king reigns over all. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, For they shall inherit the earth. In the context here, there are many things you might say about meekness. But in the context here, what what it seems to be pointing us to is we, we first begin with that humility of heart. 
We respond appropriately as it relates to ourselves. We must lament and grieve the sin that we have. And then thirdly, meekness is is this. And here's kind of just a quick definition of what I think Jesus is pointing us to in the context. Meekness is a humility of heart that does not seek to assert power over others to exploit for personal gain. If we are so infused with this Christ-centered humility, with this God-centered humility and lamenting and mourning over our sin, then what is the way that we will relate to others? We will relate to them humbly, gently, not thinking that we have any place to assert power over them so that we might exploit them for personal gain. You exist to serve me. You are here for me. You are here to make sure that I am happy. Only those who have no sense that they're living before the face of God could ever be taken with such a mindset. There's nowhere that's more clearly the battleground for biblical meekness than in our marriages. What is the way that a biblical marriage can glorify God and honor God through Christ-like love and service? It can only be as husband and wife both understand that they must approach their marriage as meek servants of God, that the roles they are given in Scripture, which are legitimate, the roles that they are given in Scripture are not given so that they might exploit the other. Their roles are given so that they might together glorify God, so that they might work together to serve one another. A husband and wife committed, committed to living this way will already have the solution to most of their conflicts and disagreements before they even occur. Do you approach these relationships in meekness? And why should you? Why is meekness so important? And it is, because it's, it's, it's truly incredible. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking about his own character, did he? But there was one particular virtue that he wanted us to understand that he had. Matthew chapter 11, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Jesus says, come to me. Why? Because I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. Here's what you need to understand. Without meekness, Jesus would not have been a savior for sinners. Without an attitude where he was able, where he's able to receive sinners who come to him, who can boast of nothing in and of themselves. Jesus rightfully can reign over us and point to his own righteousness and point to his own work and point to all the ways in which he has succeeded in which we failed. But does our meek king do that? No. The gospel is centered upon this very virtue of Jesus Christ that because he is meek and lowly and gentle and loving and filled with grace, it is for that reason that he can welcome sinners into his presence. Without meekness, Jesus is not the savior of sinners. So he reminds us of this so that we understand this is who he is. There is no gospel without a meek savior. And thus, if we are not saved without there being a meek Savior, if there is no gospel without a Christ who is meek, doesn't it make sense that there is no life in his kingdom without meekness? There is no Christian life unless we have this virtue and are growing in it. Who is it? 
that inherits the earth. The meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not consider his righteousness. He did not consider his work something that he could use to exploit others for his own personal gain. He welcomes us as a meek sinner. Or he welcomes meek sinners because he is a meek savior. Taking all of these things together, humility of heart, lamenting over sin, realizing that it is God who must create all of these things in us, we understand and know that we can only live this life by grace through faith. So what do we do? We surrender. It's a, it, it's a question of the heart, isn't it? The heart can surrender to God. The heart can trust in God. The heart can be dependent upon God. So what do we do to begin to live this life of the kingdom? We surrender all. We come before God with nothing in our hands. We come before God knowing that when we come to him looking to Jesus Christ in faith, that by grace, God will begin to create in us the life of this kingdom. So do that. Recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. Realize you are to lament and mourn your sin. Remember your meek king. Because without a meek king, uh, he would never welcome sinners who come to him. But our comfort in life and in death is that we belong to a savior. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we, we thank you that you sent your son to declare these words, that when he ascended on high, he sent the Spirit to bring the presence of Christ to us. So as we live by faith, as we live trusting in your grace, would you fill our lives with all of these things? Would you empty us? Empty us of pride and self-righteousness, selfishness, that you might fill our life and fill our lives with the way of life of Jesus. We thank you for salvation and grace. We thank you that Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We thank you for that. And that whatever is produced in us, that is what, how you call us to live. We can live by faith, trusting you every step of the way. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. We end.